Hello, I'm Carol, and welcome back to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. Today on the show, we have Nadine Freshlad, a staff writer from the business and technology publication The Ken, to be our guest on the show today. So, welcome, Nadine, to Analyze Asia. Thanks, Carol. Thanks so much for having me here. Now, our connection with the Ken is through John Russell, a frequent guest of our show and the Southeast Asia editor for the Ken. We interviewed him not long ago on the topic of go check and grab in Southeast Asia, and our listeners can check out this episode if you haven't already. And if you didn't know, the Ken is a Pan Asian subscription-based online publication from Bangalore, India, a pioneer in the subscribers-only business journalism model, and they publish just one exclusive and lengthy article a day, which. Definitely sets them apart. Now, Nadine, I know you've been working as a business and technology editor as well as a writer for quite a number of years now. So, how did you start your career, and what brought you to Asia and eventually to write for the Ken? It's actually quite a long story, and I wouldn't really call it a career in the sense that it wasn't necessarily planned this way, but a series of circumstances that led me here. So, you know, I didn't study journalism; I actually studied something media theory. And it tends to lead you toward the path in advertising or maybe in PR. But I ended up uh, working in the startup scene back in Berlin, where I was going to university, and just kind of got sucked into the whole culture and vibe of startups in Berlin of that era. And coming from Indonesia, you know, I was born in Indonesia, so I had always kept an eye on the scene in Southeast Asia and was trying to follow also how technology was disrupting things over there. And I just started blogging about this as a side project, like a really crappy little WordPress blog where I was following things that I found interesting happening in Southeast Asia in terms of technology. And Gojek was already sort of on the radar. It had just not, not launched an app yet. It was just a call center type of business. But that's something that you know caught my attention. Yeah, always looking for ways to get back to Indonesia and to somehow work in the startup ecosystem there. It took a few years,、um, but eventually I was able to return to Indonesia, and then got my start in journalism when I landed a gig at Tech in Asia, which was which is one of the major technology news sites here in the region. And from there, I just started covering tech, you know, full time, and I really got bitten by the journalism bug. That's just gone on from there. I've tried to broaden my horizon a bit beyond tech. I started covering other sectors as well. Now with the Ken, I'm back to tech and business with a lens on the digital transformation aspect of all businesses. Understood. I was actually going to ask why you are in Indonesia, but now it makes sense because you were born there. So, do you think、um, Indonesia is the most interesting market for you for Southeast Asia? That's why you want to be based there as a journalist. I'm. I'm not sure. I would say it's the most interesting market. Singapore is also extremely interesting with all the big tech headquarters there. But it's it's definitely one of the you know biggest and the hottest in terms of how much venture capital has come into this country and how quick the speed of change has been. And I do have to say, like when it comes to the companies that come out from Indonesia, especially Gojek with this on-demand business model that's based on motorcycle taxis, I just haven't really seen that anywhere else. I mean, now it kind of exists in other countries as well, but I think Gojek pioneered this. I just see that as an as an interesting breakthrough, which which is quite unique to Indonesia. Now let's dive into the topics that we are going to discuss today. First of which is to understand the influence. 
of U.S. and Chinese tech giants in Indonesia. Now, on the podcast, we often talk about you know Southeast Asia as a whole, but of course, the situation in each country is very different. So, can you describe how the U.S. tech giants like Google, Facebook, PayPal, etc., have built their influence in Indonesia in particular? Well, those three companies you mentioned, I think they're actually quite different in the way they've treated Indonesia and Google. You know, maybe because Indonesia is such a huge market for Android, you know, 90% of the market share here for Android operating system phones. So Google's always had quite a big interest in Indonesia, especially like on the developer side. They've invested in developer boot camps, trainings, that kind of thing. They have a Google Launchpad where they connect local startups with the Silicon Valley ecosystem. And there's just been a lot of focus on long game, I want to say, where Google invests in training, infrastructure, and so on, just with the long-term vision, you know, of capturing the Indonesian market. You know, Google cemented that with certain investments. For example, it just launched the Google Cloud platform region in Indonesia, where previously data centers had only been available in Singapore for Indonesian customers. And now, you know, it's available inside Indonesia. And of course, Google has also been a major investor in Gojek since 2017, 2018. And they've also just doubled down again uh, with another investment in Gojek's payment arm. So I think Google has been very present in Indonesia, has done a lot of groundwork to build a community and ecosystem here. I think it's just realized need partners to achieve certain commercial goals, like Google Pay never launched in Indonesia, and I do think that its investment in GoPay kind of bridges that gap so that it uses Gojek as a proxy for certain uh, licenses, etc. And when it comes to Facebook, just to keep this trend of thought going, so Facebook, I think, has been a bit late to the game and hasn't been involved in the way of this type of ecosystem building that Google has done, just done enough to always be here and be relevant here. You know, there's no way around saying that Facebook's apps are extremely dominant in the social media sphere here. If you look at who commands the most monthly active users, it's Facebook Messenger, Facebook itself, WhatsApp, Instagram. They're just consistently in the top with Indonesia's large population. You know, it is a relevant market for them, but they just haven't done that much in terms of trying to innovate here or bringing people here. And I think it's changing a little bit, you know, and also, of course, Facebook was one of the majors who invested in Gojek recently in that round, also in Gojek's mobile wallet, GoPay. So I think now Facebook's coming to the realization that, you know, to reach their next step in the development, which will eventually have to go beyond social media to become a more commercial transactional platform, that they'll need partners in their growth markets like Indonesia. And I think the Gojek Invest was a testament to that. And lastly, you mentioned PayPal. I think PayPal's but similar to Facebook, wasn't really that focused on Indonesia, didn't really pay much attention here, maybe also because it's not that easy for payment to get the licenses here and it's in flux. So I think that's kept some of the international players away and just waiting for their chance to crack it by striking up a good partnership. And for that reason, PayPal also invested in, in GoPay. And I think that the strategy that most of the international companies have taken that they're trying to find a proxy through which they can achieve their goals rather than launching products themselves here. And just now you mentioned a Google Cloud platform, which in terms of cloud infrastructure uh, is the first to physically enter um, Indonesia before, you know, Amazon and Microsoft. Did this move hurt local hosting providers? Honestly, I wouldn't really say so much so because the local hosting providers don't really have the, you know, infrastructure and add-on services that 
big global players offer. So they weren't technically competing in the same category in first place. And I think companies that would have needed the services provided by, say, GDC or AWS, they would have just used the service based in Singapore. So it was already possible before. It's just that now the infrastructure is inside Indonesia. I don't necessarily see it as taking a lot of market share from the local hosting providers. Gotcha. It's just now maybe AWS needs to consider also maybe building some infrastructure uh, within the borders. Now, in one of your most recent articles, you also highlighted a job recruiting site called Cormo recently launched by Google in Indonesia. Can you explain why Cormo was created and what does Google want to achieve out of this? Cormo is actually like a very, very small unit within the whole Google universe. Google practically has its own batch of startups in-house and Cormo can be seen as one of them. It started in their Area 120 uh, incubator and it's a job discovery or job matching app that's targeting developing or emerging markets and especially the blue and gray color type of jobs. So your drivers factory workers, warehouse workers, and so on. I don't think we can overstate the influence of Cormo yet. It's just interesting that Google wants to experiment and continue developing products that are somewhat a little bit removed from a core suite of products, but as part of the, and I think that illustrates how Google thinks about Indonesia and how it works together with its partners here. Because for example, Cormo, which Google considers part of its next billion user initiative, and uh, next billion user basically means developing services and tools that are going to be relevant for the generation of mobile phone users that's just coming of age now. Indonesia through the community of developers that Google has built over the years is an easy launchpad for these kinds of experiments. So when they brought Google here for when they brought Cormo here, for example, they launched it with a very, very tiny team. It was basically just a handful of people. They hired interns and they were able to kind of test this thing at at almost no cost. I think that's why, you know, they're also trying to keep a relatively low profile around Cormo because it's an experimental product at the moment and Google and EU product, they kind of tend to come and go. They develop them and they see what sticks. It's a pretty interesting experiment and uh, interesting that they chose Indonesia as the place to experiment with this particular product. It's not only just in Indonesia, they actually ah. launched it first in Bangladesh and also in India and now it's also in Indonesia. So I think in gotcha. India and Indonesia were kind of parallel and Bangladesh was the one where they tried it first. I see. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> now, we've talked uh, quite a bit about these um, US giants. Um, you know, they have invested in Indonesia's top unicorns. So what are these Chinese tech giants doing in Indonesia? I can think of, for example, uh, JD Indonesia, which is actually one of the six Indonesian unicorns, although they're only valued at 1 billion. So they're at the bottom of the rank. But yeah, I mean, pretty much the same as, as the global giants, they come, place very big investments. If you look at Alibaba's investment in Tokopedia, uh, Tencent and Gojek, JD and Gojek, Meituan and Gojek, and Financial invested in Bukalapak. So they've definitely gone or chosen the route of partnering with the local heroes and just kind of like placing their stakes and trying to use you know their knowledge and technology to help their partners achieve a certain sale. And when we talk about Chinese giants, of course, we all know what's happening with the recent pushbacks uh, from the Indian government, the US government on TikTok, for example. Do you think the Indonesian government will also follow suit with either policies or regulations to potentially, you know, ban Chinese apps in Indonesia? I mean, I honestly don't think so because Indonesia has always 
intended to play nice with both China and the US. I can't really see them taking a very strong stance against either side. I mean, there have been attempts to ban or block certain apps, but that's mostly on the grounds of content. Often, you know, it's when companies don't enable communication channels with the Indonesian government to, for example, censor certain content, then there'll be the threat of a ban in the air. But I think in this case, TikTok showed itself quite willing to cooperate. They they opened an office here. I think that's the kind of commitment that Indonesia wants to see. And when a company does that, whether it's from the US or China, I don't think there'll be a ban for any political reason. And of course, we can't avoid the name Gojek when we talk about anything related to technology in Indonesia. Now, we did interview uh, John in episode 329 on the topic, exclusively talking about just Gojek and its super app war with Grab and how the investments from the different players are fueling this war. Do you have anything that you want to add to comment on, you know, how does the investments, recent investments from, you know, Facebook, PayPal or Google? and Tencent really supercharge uh, Gojack's ambition to be a super app in their war against Grab? I mean, the way I see it now, Gojack isn't really yet a super app. You know, it has many features and functions, but to me, I don't think there's a textbook definition of what a super app is actually meant to be. But the way I would see it is, you know, WeChat is the mother of, of all super apps, if you will, and it has managed to be a little universe and platform in itself where many apps are able to connect what's going on inside the WeChat ecosystem with other companies at. And I think to achieve that, you know, that level of integration with businesses all around Gojek, that would make it a super app. And I think obviously like WeChat would have an interesting role in this whole plan, right? Because WeChat is used very widely here by um, even the smallest of micro-businesses. They would somehow be on WeChat and they would somehow service their customers through chat application. And if you could link WhatsApp or Jack user base, the element of um, location, on-demand transportation, I think you could imagine like an even sort of more fluid transactional network happening. And I think that's kind of where it's going. So, but still in the very early stages. The second topic that I really wanted to discuss is the secondary market for Southeast Asian startups. As most of our listeners probably know, the number of actual exits from startups are very few and far in between in Southeast Asia. So how are investors who do invest in Southeast Asia justifying their returns to their LPs? I mean, yes, this is a story that we repeat to ourselves, right? That this Asia startup ecosystem is super exciting, investors are bullish, but then there's the caveat, there aren't actually that many meaningful mega exits and IPOs that would lead to VCs and founders of these startups and eventually also employees to actually reap the, the benefits of that. But at the same time, enough is happening to keep that story going. So otherwise, nobody would really invest if there weren't anything to show for it. One thing that helps this ecosystem going at the moment is what we just discussed, you know, the secondary market, which helps early VCs to sell shares to another VC and generating liquidity for their fund. So in my story that I wrote about this, I gathered data with the help of a VC firm called Central Ventures, and they found that per estimation, about a third of each dollar in liquidity generated here in the Southeast Asian startup ecosystem is can be attributed to secondary share sales. So it's not, you know, accounting for everything, but a good third. And this good third, I think, is important because it does allow early investors to 
once their funds reach the end of their life cycles to bring them, to close them, to, to generate some returns that aren't spectacular but also, you know, acceptable. And this has helped in the lifespan of the ecosystem, which is taking longer to mature before you do see these IPOs and mega uh, exits. I think you explained a little bit about how, you know, VCs manage to generate liquidity using secondary share sales. But can you just elaborate a little bit more on how the secondary share sales work? Um, oh man, there are so many different scenarios. A typical one would be basically the opportunity for, you know, let's say angel investors or seed stage investors who have been supporting a startup for many years, you know, maybe five, six years. And in the funding round, another investor uh, expresses interest in the company, but instead of waiting for the next formal fundraising round, they could acquire shares from an existing investor and just kind of take their place in the capital. This kind of a side deal that where where we see sometimes even founders are able to sell their own shares to another investor. Are there any platforms where secondary um, share sales can be transacted, you know, between investors, employees, founders of startups? So where where do these you know sales take place, or how do they find each other? I mean, there's that too. So the first type of share sale that I described where one VC would sell to another, that's not necessarily taking place on a platform. Those are often deals that are negotiated, basically off the books. It's not necessarily um, that visible. And that's also what makes this such an interesting story, I think, is because that we don't really see all what's happening in the secondary space. But there are now marketplaces that are targeting this opportunity. And um, one of them is called Fungnal in Southeast Asia. Um, internationally, there's one called Ford. And this is targeted more towards the even smaller size deal. So let's say if I'm an employee of a startup and I have employee share that, you know, I'm eligible to sell, I can use this marketplace to find a buyer. Do these secondary sale of shares generate, you know, friction between founders of startups, their investors, given the fact that it will disrupt the cap table of the company? I mean, they're actually quite common, and not just in Southeast Asia, but um, across the board for different reasons. Right? In most cases, I would say they actually help clean up the cap table and maybe even reduce potential sources of friction if the cap table gets you know, very fragmented and long and there are many interests from early stage to later stage VCs. It may help to actually you know, clear up some of the, of the potential for friction. And that's, I think, how it is most often used just a chance to reward angel investors and CPCs who've been supporting the startup for a long time. That said, I would assume, you know, friction is possible in those types of deals. For example, you know, as a founder, you may not actually know who's the incoming investor. You may not have that much time to do your own due diligence or research about who your seed investor is actually selling to. So you, as a founder, you should always have an eye on, on those kinds of transactions that are going on. Do you see, you know, secondary share sales as an important mechanism for VCs or PE firms to generate liquidity? And is this kind of similar to how Silicon Valley VCs and angel investors sold their shares to SoftBank two years ago? It's definitely a mechanism that can keep the ecosystem going. Like I mentioned, I don't think it can fully really replace this big blockbuster exit, but they've certainly like just bought more time where some of the early stage VCs here have reached the you know, end of their first fund life cycle. They've just not been there to help kind of pass on the baton. With regards to the SoftBank situation, I'm not sure if it's comparable to the scale of that. You mean, for example, how also think acquired shares in Uber at some point. Right? Certainly thinkable that this kind of situation happens here, but I think it was also, I don't think it's quite a 
thirdly, I, I really want to, you know, zoom in on some of the startups that uh, are from Indonesia. You wrote an article in, in June that profiled this Indonesian startup darling called uh, Kopi Kanigan. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And uh, it caught our eye because some have coined it the luck and coffee of Indonesia. But of course, those of us who have read the article understand that they are different. But can you first briefly introduce this company, Kopi Kanagan, um, to our listeners? So in Indonesia, we say Kopi Kanangan, where Kanangan means something like a memory. I definitely butchered it. I'm sorry. <laughs> so Kopi Kanangan, it's basically a coffee chain, you know, it sells your regular like black coffee, cappuccino, but it's sort of flagship drink, it's an iced coffee, a sweetened uh, milk iced coffee, and it also has like a variety of lifestyle drinks, by which I mean your boba, your cookie crumble, pop milkshakes, etc. It's got a bunch of physical outlets, but it's also works on a delivery strategy, like from your start, it has its own app, and going through the bigger food delivery networks, like GoFood and GrabFood. And in many ways, it does resemble luck and coffee in that regard, that it's coffee chain put on digital rail. And I know that, you know, in Indonesia is a coffee producing country. It's Java. Coffee beans are very well known. When I visited Bali, I had relatives who, who wanted me to bring back the Luwak coffee beans as well. So how is the coffee culture like in Indonesia? And how does that help Kopi to reach its customers? I mean, like you just said, Indonesia is a big coffee-producing country. I think you're one of the major global exporters next to Brazil. And you could say that coffee is a traditional drink that's rooted in everyday culture. Although in the past decade or so, you know, a lot of that coffee consumption has moved to instant coffee because it's, it's so much cheaper and more convenient and so on and so forth. So, you know, people for breast freshly brewed coffee have somehow moved up into the higher-end segment. You know, Starbucks is quite popular here, and a lot of like Starbucks imitating chains are also independent coffee shops catering to the more upmarket taste. And I think the new coffee chains, including Coffee Canana, are kind of attempting to bridge that gap and making actual freshly brewed coffee more affordable again to the masses. So, so there's that aspect to it. And how has Kopi as a business scaled up in, in recent years, for example, in terms of their number of retail outlets, their customer reach, and are they having issues with their burn rates or having, you know, massive burns? I mean, I think you have to see Kopi coming in a little bit just like pre-COVID and now post-COVID. I think previous to COVID, when the outlook for Indonesia's economy was great, when, you know, retail locations were opening and second, third tier cities, Kopi Kanan was kind of riding that wave and they were opening a lot of new stores. I think they had 300 or something. And you have to, I guess, take note in the sense in comparison to Luck and Coffee, Kopi Kanan is able to operate its stores profitably. So at the store level, they're not a huge firm in that sense. They, they can sell enough to have each store kind of sustain itself. Of course, mm -hmm. as a company, they have other expenses. But then, you know, COVID happened, which kind of dampened their whole outlook for the next year. Initially, they had planned to expand also internationally to Malaysia and Thailand, I believe, add more outlets, hire more people. And this was kind of scaled back a bit. So now with fewer 
to patients that are physically open. They you know, paid more attention again to the delivery aspect of it, but that's still something they're figuring out. Can you explain the unit economics of Kopi Kanegan in Indonesia and contrast that with luck and coffee? I can really only just like, talk about it in, in the rough terms that, you know, to make a cup of coffee isn't really all that expensive. I think when I spoke with the founder CEO of Kopi Kanegan, you know, the most expensive ingredient is actually the milk, not the coffee. And to produce and serve a cup of coffee for them is not expensive. So they can, you know, as I said, make door profitable, say, you know, sell 300 cups a day or something like that. So it has just a handful of people working there. Everything is quite organized around efficiency. And I think uh, what sets them apart from the way Luck and Coffee approaches customers is that Kopi Kananga never did these huge promotional sales. I think that's where a lot of people say Luck and Coffee sort of fell off a cliff as they started firing customers by offering one cup and the other one, then the next cup for free or something crazy like that. So in effect, they were giving away coffee for free and creating this user base that was basically only there for the freebie. And Kopi Kananga didn't really have to go through that path because people are already a fan of the drink. They, you know, invested in something that's quite a good branding here. So Kopi Kananga is something that's kind of aspirational to young people here. So I think that's where the two businesses are fundamentally not cut from the same cloth. I just realized I probably shouldn't refer to a Kopi Kanangan as just Kopi because Kopi just means coffee, doesn't it? Um, in the local language. In your perspective, what has allowed uh, Kopi Kanangan to move away from, you know, the shadow of luck and coffee, given the latter's recent scandal and just kind of distance itself from the, the Chinese um, company? I mean, that's a good question. I guess it will distance itself from Luckin if it doesn't rush to unrealistic growth targets and rush to an IPO. You know, those who follow Coffee and uh, sorry, Luckin Coffee were, I think, from the start a little bit suspicious about all the crazy growth numbers it reported. I mean, I, I just think you know what happened with Luckin is just like the extreme end of mismanagement and exploiting, I guess, the ability to just raise more and more money with, with a story that nobody really bothered to, to look behind. And I think for Kopi Kanangan, you know, it's an F&B business and there isn't really a reason why it shouldn't be a good and profitable business eventually. It just you know, takes time to build a company like that and it has to be done sensibly with, with the right target, also obviously with the right investors who, who aren't you know, going to let themselves be seized by something like that. I remember reading in your article that a lot of other industry veterans in the food and beverage industry were unsure about the future of a um, you know startup darling, but in a more traditional industry. What do you think could be some possible outcomes for uh, Kobe Kanegan? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's true. In my story I mentioned, I had interviewed a couple of SMB veterans, and I think to them, it's this is just quite a new phenomenon that you have these venture capital, these F&B startup on steroids, where other uh, businesses, you know, would have grown by funded, raising, you know, maybe taking credit, borrowing money from family and friends and just building the business over 10 years, store by store. Suddenly this is happening all in the span of a few months. And it is something that we just haven't really seen the outcome of yet, you know. There's Kopi Kanangan. According to filings, Kopi Kanangan is already a $500 million worth company. And it's, it's a little bit hard to see how that matches with reality that startup culture and some of these things happen and the way forward for Kopi Kanangan would be you know build and grow and then eventually go public and you know maybe prove to be worth that much you know it continues to be operating in a very tough climate needs to raise new money you know will valuation still be that high will it also need to take a down round eventually all those things could happen right 
and it's happened before. And I read that its uh, market cap was actually, or its valuation was higher than Starbucks Indonesia. I was I was quite surprised because I myself have, haven't heard of uh, Kopi Kanagan before. I'm sure a lot of our listeners haven't heard about it either before, but that's the benefit of having journalists on the ground like yourself, you know, living in the country. So do you have any other startups in your mind that you can recall that you find uh, very interesting that uh, you might write about in the future or that we should know about companies such as, you know, Copy uh, Kanagan? In terms of startups that are still in the early stages, there's one that I wrote about called Wahyu, which is helping these small street side eateries transform in some ways, first by fulfilling their basic needs for going grocery shopping. So this company has said, you know, we'll step in, you know, order through us. We'll deliver you your groceries for free. You save the trip to the market every day. And then over time, you know, why don't you also use our accounting tools? Why don't you also, you know, upsell certain other products that we have in our portfolio to your customers? And so it's trying to help these eateries modernize that haven't really had any changes in their business practices over, you know, I don't know, maybe last 40, 50 years. So that's one type of business model that I'm quite interested in. And perhaps also companies in the agriculture space here. Those are, in my opinion, potentially interesting and quite disruptive too, because agriculture is another field where you know, there just hasn't been any innovation, there hasn't been any real focus or energy put on, and Indonesia is losing a lot of its farmers from you know the young generation moving to cities, and basically only the old people remaining in charge of fulfilling the, the basic needs of the, you know working on the field. So I think startups that can make agriculture more efficient, more attractive more interesting to the young generation that could potentially be um And I know that Indonesia is uh, still being quite heavily impacted by COVID, disrupted by COVID, isn't it, right now? Have you seen any disruptions due to COVID-19 that are quite unique to Indonesia? I would say, as many things in Indonesia, it's never really black and white. And we have, you know, what's so-called lockdown or quarantine, there's usually always a gray zone. I've never seen the streets completely empty or shops really closed. I think that's very typically Indonesian, and maybe that's also why we're struggling with with COVID for such a long time. And you know what, the startups that you mentioned, they really, to me, has like this Indonesian flavor to it that I find very interesting. That that was my last question, actually. But there is one more for you, which is, can you recommend a book, a podcast, or something that you have consumed recently, which has inspired you in your work or personal life? In terms of books that I've been reading or that I've read, there's one that I remember, um, Uncanny Valley by Anna Wiener, a, a woman whose original job was working in the publishing industry and she somehow segued into working for startups in Silicon Valley. And in this book, she just, she just writes about her conflicting feelings of being sort of the black sheep in tech bro culture. And it resonated with me because I had a little bit of the same experience with my first jobs in the startup scene where, you know, at the same time, you're kind of fascinated by it, but you're also kind of a little bit, you know, shocked um, by, by just how tight knit these worldviews are in, in Silicon Valley and among tech entrepreneurs. So, uh, yeah, that book just kind of resonated with me for uh, for those reasons. Maybe what else? What, I'm, what I have on my reading list now, I haven't actually started, but I think it should be interesting, is a book called The Bubble That Never Popped, and it's about the Chinese economy and 
I think a bit of an alternative view, you know, China bashing has become a little bit on vogue and more nuanced views are, are interesting and this one uh, offers the view that maybe the Chinese economy isn't actually on the verge of a, of a catastrophe. That, that sounds like a very interesting book. I might look it up after. I, I understand that you also um, run your own newsletter, is that right? I have a newsletter that's more or less um, weekly. Sometimes I skip a week. I just follow um, Indonesia's social media sphere, specifically on Twitter, and I pick trending topics. Every day of the week, more or less every day of the week, I'll pick one topic that come, came up as a trending topic in Indonesian Twitter, and I just try to tell the story of what's behind the trend and why why people are interested in this. It kind of helps me digest you know, the news of the week and also just some funny in-jokes about Indonesian culture. That sounds like a really interesting newsletter. Indonesia is also very special to my heart because my favorite rapper is from Indonesia. And you can probably guess who that is. <laughs> That's right, Rich Ryan. And he's actually in my hometown filming um, a Chinese rap show right now. But too bad I can't go see him. But if our readers want to read more of your work, where can they find you? And if they want to, you know, contact you to learn more about some of the stories that you write or give you tips, how can they find you? On social media, probably best through Twitter, where I'm at nfreishlat. That's N-F-R-E-I-S-C-H. L-A-D. If you want to write me an email, give me a tip, I'm totally open to that. And it's um, nadine at the dash ken.com. And I would definitely recommend everyone to check out Nadine's work at The Ken. And if you want to find more episodes of Analyze Asia, we are available on all podcasting platforms. And again, thank you so much, Nadine, for coming onto the show. And I look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thanks, Carol.